This is Leo from Hannah, Connecticut, and you are listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM streaming at newhavenindependent.org. Welcome to Book Talk, where we talk about books. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and today we'll be discussing the novel Girl Through Glass, first with the author, Sari Wilson, and then with my guests, Kate Kincaid and Alice Baumgartner. And don't forget to stay tuned at the end of the show for our regular feature, a middle-grade pick of the week from one of our friendly New Haven librarians. Girl Through Glass moves between past and present. In the past, specifically in 1970s New York, we meet Mira, an 11-year-old aspiring ballerina whose parents' marriage is falling apart. In the present, we meet Kate, a visiting professor of dance studies at a small college, who in her 40s is struggling to find a stable life as an academic. Mira has secrets. Kate does as well. These are slowly revealed as the novel unfolds. I won't say what they are right now, but I'll remind our listeners that we always talk about the whole book on this show, so if you want to avoid spoilers, go read the book right now and then listen to the rest. The author, Sari Wilson, grew up in Brooklyn, where she studied ballet. She graduated from Oberlin College with a major in history and a minor in dance, and was a Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford. She was also a Fine Arts Work Center Fellow in Provincetown, Massachusetts, and received a residency from Yaddo. Girl Through Glass is her first novel. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and daughter. Earlier this week, I had the opportunity to speak with Sari, and I'd like to share that interview with you now. Sari, thanks so much for joining me today on Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. I'm going to start by asking you to read a passage from the book, even though I don't normally do this, but I really wanted to begin with the beginning. And so I'm going to ask if you'll read to us from the first chapter, just on page one to the break on page two. Sure, I'd be honored. Ghosts, chapter one, July 1977. The garbage bags pile high on the sidewalks. The city shudders and heaves under the heat. The newspapers are filled with accounts of people being shot at night in darkened cars. Pride at New York City having its very own serial killer competes with the fear of going out after dark. At bus stops, children wearing keys around their necks, latchkey kids they are called, wait alone. There is an infestation of blue-bottle flies whose bug-out eyes see everything. They are poisoned to death in a citywide public health campaign, but barrelfuls of pigeons die too, and their rotting corpses have to be stepped over while crossing the streets. The sprinkler systems in the city parks break and, due to lack of funding, go unrepaired. Throughout Brooklyn, the fire hydrants are decapitated and a barrage of water spouts forth. The children splash in the gutters with the pigeon corpses and dried popsicle sticks and Twinkie wrappers, while the grown-ups stumble around, cursing and trying to drag them out. Then there is the day in July when the lights go out. Block after block blinks off. Fans and air conditioners stall. Under the purple haze, people gather on street corners, in hallways and in parks, around battery-powered boom boxes, a citywide blackout. Thousands of ladybug 
eggs hatch in the Brooklyn Botanic Garden's suddenly warm storage freezer. In the days afterwards, they blanket Brooklyn's parks and apartment windowsills. Then come the reports of looting and up in the Bronx of fierce fires in abandoned buildings. The people lock their doors and swear at the heat and pray for their city. The grown-ups are busy with the untenable state of their lives. Perhaps they feel relief at the darkness. It is the children who stand and watch their city extinguish like a dying flame. When the ladybugs die, they fall to the grass, the floor, they crunch underfoot. They choke up vacuum cleaners. When the cool air comes, their husks are blown under piles of leaves, and unheralded casualties of the ever-changing season begin their descent into the earth. So I found that passage incredibly evocative, and yet also a really interesting choice of where to begin for a book that so much of this book is about ballet, and yet this first beginning is not about ballet. And I wondered if that was always the beginning, and if not, when it became the beginning, and, when, and why you made that decision. Um, yeah, I, I think it was the second beginning. The first beginning was the, the next passage, actually, that describes the world of ballet from the sort of from the perspective of these little ballet girls who are getting um, dressed for their ballet class, putting on their tights and leotards like they're, they're getting ready for battle. And that was the first sequence of images that came to me many years ago. I wrote it down, and I... I, I I cried, <laughs> and I thought, what is that? And then I put it away. And then um, I tried to do a number of things with it that didn't quite work, short stories and, um, and, a, and a memoir. And then it wasn't until I realized that I was actually really writing about this specific time and place, um, this city, that I had known as a child, New York City, probably when I moved back here, which is 14 years ago now, after not living in New York for many years. And then I wrote that section, and I put them together, and then I had these two strands. And then sort of the, the, the DNA of the book took, you know, it was formed at that point. So to keep going with the discussion about your process, the book goes back and forth, as we talked about, between past and present. And I'm similarly curious about whether you started with that structure or if you didn't when you came to it. No, I. it was a result of a lot of trial and error over many years. Um, so I had these images first, and then I, I wrote... Um, of some of the you know about these images from the ballet world and then I was writing about New York City and um, out of that grew this character of Mira who uh, and also my failure to write a memoir about my own dance experience which turned out to be not really that unique or interesting in its own right but I felt like there was still something there so I ended up sort of going deeper into it and interviewing a number of girls I danced with in the late 1970s and 1980s in New York City, and some of whom had gone on to professional careers and just really all over the board. And then I sort of created this composite character of Mira, and she really took off. You know, I I wrote her storyline first, and when I finished, I had a child, and 
I felt that the, story, the, the novel wasn't finished. I showed it to one person in publishing who said that she thought it might be a YA book, but the, but the tone was, was clearly not YA. It was adult-themed, and, and, and the language was adult. So, like, a series of things happened that made me kind of reassess and think, you know, okay, what is this book? At the same time, I started getting this other voice. I don't know if it had to do with becoming a mother, but she was much older. She was sort of bitter woman and but I I felt deeply for her too and so her voice um, was in first person and she became Kate so then I followed her voice to the end and as I did I constructed the novel so I made a lot of charts along the way and that was a more targeted process than the writing of Mira which was a more freeform process. It's interesting you say that it was after you became a mother that the character of Kate came to you because as you know, we'll be talking about the book with two guests later on who've also read the book, and we were emailing about it earlier, and uh, and I recently sent them a one-line email that said, Mothers, I really want to talk about mothers in this book. <laughs> <laughs> and so right. do you feel like that idea of mothers, what it means to be a mother, um, the ways mothers fail us, was that something you were conscious of in writing it? And do you think that more came to you after having a child of your own? Yeah, I th- yeah, I think it was always part of the book in a sense. I from the earliest um configurations of the material and you know this question I I did have to myself which was you know where were the mothers um in that world? The mothers who were in that world were were not mothering in a way that um was 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 responsible for their children. I'm not blaming them, but you know they were caught up too in 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 um, in wanting to be fulfilled through their children. And and then the mothers, you know, my mother was not a stage mother. She really didn't have an interest in ballet. It was something I fell into through a friend. And so my story was different. But but nevertheless, you know, it was a world that was occupied by children who were struggling with their innocence, were more innocent, I think, than they believed themselves to be, and the absence of true adults. The adults in that world were not like adults in, the, in, in, in you know, the real world, let's say. So it was a question I had, yeah. It's interesting that even, so you, you wrote the sections separately, and even though one takes place in the past, they're both written in the present tense. Was that yes. was that a conscious decision? Um, no, I would say that came again out of these two voices that emerged out of two different periods of my life and my writing life. Um, I think the Mira, you know, it made sense to me psychologically as I put the book together that Mira's Mira's story would be in the past tense because actually it happens in the past and. And Kate um, is trying to understand her own past and, in a sense, is narrating her own past. Um, so, and that, that, that we are living through, as the reader and as a writer, as I wrote her narrative, I was living through her psychological attempt to understand her own past and kind of, he, I think, heal herself in a sense um from these 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 wounds from her childhood um 
and they it demands a lot. You know that that psychological journey is 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 of the moment and is very. It feels very important and very. Um, you know, it felt very important to me as I wrote it. So it, ha- it absolutely had to be in the present tense. <laughs> There's a line on, I think it's page 249, where Kate says, my past is always alive, is always being made. And to me, that sort of explained why it would be in the present, because there is the sense of the past as continuing to live. Yes. Um, can you tell me what that is again? Yeah. I, I, I think it's page 249. Um, it's when It's when Kate goes back to New York and she's, at Columbus Circle, um, she's kind of, you know, revisiting the, the scene of the crime, as it were. Um, yes, yes, and the and and the line and the line is um, the city is a mirage, a dream, a world spilling out too small for itself. My past is always alive, is always being made. Yes, right. I I felt that I was getting somewhere with that line too, um, and that connects to this feeling about New York City and being a child here and then moving back as an adult and seeing a very different city and interacting with it in such a different way and, you know, sort of wondering what is real, you know, like as we get older, the sense of time seems to shift and what is the, how real is the past, but then the past is still alive in us in in, in these very deep ways. And... So, right, so I felt that Kate and, and me through Kate were, were sort of like reaccessing this past city, this past state that was still within her and therefore still still real um, and happening now, yeah. Mm-hmm. About midway through the book, it becomes unequivocally clear that Kate and Mira are the same person, but there are many intimations very early on that this is the case. How much did you want it to be a surprise for the reader? And how much did you want us to suspect? And if it, if it wasn't meant as a revelation, why write it in this way? Um, yeah, th- that question is, is, is interesting because people seem to be all over the board on when they know uh, that Kate and Mir are the same person, in fact, and whether it is a surprise to them or not. Um, I wasn't sure as I wrote it because I, <clears throat> I was, as I put these two storylines together, I was interested in, okay, so how, how do we read and how do we discover as readers and that piece of it? So borrowing almost from the mystery novelists, you know, um, the, the question of revelation of information and what is literary sleight of hand? And what do we enjoy as readers being withheld from us? Because there's a satisfaction in that as readers mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. discovering as we go along. So there's a sort of game that is happening between the writer and the reader. Um, I know if a game is played badly, it's just it's just um, very disappointing as a reader mm-hmm. <laughs> because I was and I was worried about that, um, which is why I made many many charts um, mm-hmm. to. To, to try to understand what the reader might know at these different points and what uh, information I could allow to be revealed, and it, it became a sort of complicated puzzle. The question of whether Mir and Kate were the same person was not really something that I had a large investment in as a, as a writer. I didn't really care, actually, if the reader knew that from the outset. Um, 
but at the same time, it was, I didn't feel like I needed as a writer to make that clear up front. It just didn't, I, I just, it, it didn't seem to work for the novel. So I, I really am happy if a reader doesn't know or, you know, knows very quickly and is reading for other um, things, uh, other questions, or if that is something that comes a little bit later, I think it becomes fairly clear fairly early on to most people. And then they are interested in how this young girl, this very passionate, idealistic, you know, uh, girl, ambitious girl, becomes this sort of, um, you know, troubled uh, middle-aged woman, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I think that I... I suspected very early on, there's a mention very early about her hair, her bright hair. And, you know, we're continually alerted to the fact that Mira similarly has this bright red hair. And so, you know, it's, it's this clue and, and you're not positive, but you think perhaps. But for me, I think it really, it worked in much the same way as, you know, another thing I was thinking about was the fact that the Kate sections are written in the first person and the Mira sections are written in the third person. Um, and it is this kind of con- conscious distancing that Kate is doing from her younger self. And yeah. I felt like the novel was really consciously enacting that, even in its, in the way that it, that Kate, in some ways, is herself not acknowledging that Mira is her younger self. So it felt okay for me to know that, because I could see how Kate was doing that. If that makes sense? Yes, I think it makes absolute sense, and I and I think that that's um, maybe I didn't articulate it to myself consciously exactly in those words, but that is why it felt right to me to use these two different points of view and to not establish, you know, right up front that these are the same people because it is, it's kind of a psychological portrait of this woman's mind and her self-narration. So as I was reading the book, I noticed that certain words recur frequently. Um, there's dark or darkness, secrets, power, desire, beauty. And it reminded me more than anything of a piece of music where a theme or motif is introduced and then it's woven throughout where there's variations on it, but it keeps kind of returning to that basic theme. Was that something you were aware of as you were writing it or was it something you went back and kind of revisited to make it more present? Um... Well, I, I, I was aware of it, but it wasn't conscious. I mean, my writing process that evolved during the course of this book was doing a lot of free writing to get material out. <laughs> I wrote, wrote many, many, many pages that never appeared in the novel. And so a lot of it, the book came together through editing. Mm-hmm. And when I would go back and reread and try to figure out what is this book about and who are these characters? I was looking for clues like that, you know, thematic clues what the, as to what this material is about. What is at the heart of it? And you're, you know, very perceptive, yes. You know, at the heart of it is, a, you know, it's about ambition. Um, it's about beauty, conceptions of beauty, different conceptions of beauty, um, power, how those things all intersect. And light and dark, yes, those are obvious um, thematic motifs that come from um, ballet, that come from, I think, a romantic tradition in Europe and the romantic era of ballet, which this borrows a lot of motifs from, 
you know, even in terms of its storytelling. Um, so I guess the answer is, yeah, I was conscious. I, I was conscious as I was writing it that that was coming through. And then I consciously sort of would look for those clues and use them as ways to uh, weave together storylines. I want to pick up on what you said about how the storytelling in some ways borrows from that ballet tradition. I, I definitely noticed that. I felt like you have the setting of the scene, the introduction of the characters, and then you know the dramatic climax and a, and a quiet resolution. I want to specifically talk about that dramatic climax. Um, you know, we we learn quite late in the book, again, spoiler alert, uh, that uh, Mira is raped when she's 14 and becomes pregnant and gives birth to a child. And it's a really dramatic climax to the book. I guess my question is, do you, how do you write that without falling into melodrama? Why do you feel, why did you feel like that kind of level of violence was necessary to tell the story you wanted to tell? Because I think you do run the risk of being accused of it being melodramatic when you do that. So it's clearly something you think about and make a choice about. Yeah, it's true. Um, and I, I was concerned about that, but I think what allowed me to enter into that material, as difficult as it was to write that scene, I have to say, it was very painful to write. Um, it's painful to read, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, but it felt very necessary for the thematic, res- for, for the thematic development of the story and the character arcs. Um, but what allowed me to go there was the fact that I was, I was consciously borrowing from these, these sort of over, uh, larger than life, um, romantic classical ballets, um, that I had been in love with as a child Mm -hmm. that, you know, like Giselle and like Swan Lake. And I think that many girls take those in at, and boys too, I shouldn't just say girls, take those in at a very early age. And there's something about the kind of passion, the devotional aspect, and that type of love that the, the main characters in those ballets are allowed to exhibit. That is really wonderful. And there's a complete lack of cynicism <laughs> in the stories. And I think uh, coming through writing workshops and whatnot, I was looking for something to free me from a learned voice. And going back to my childhood and back to my love of those those dramas, you know, those almost, they are melodramas, but well, they speak to something I deeper. Think a lot of fairy tales. There is a fairy tale element. So the rape, yes, the rape is real and it's happening, but it also is a, I know this is not okay to say on one level that it's a metaphor, but in this, in the way that the book functions as a metaphor in the same way um, that Giselle is about, not really about death, but about new life, you know, or Swan Lake, about... Um, passion and love and and the the death is a spiritual death so so for me it was functioning on that level and that allowed me to i think you know use these very sort of over large um 
moments, dramatic moments, uh, and access them. Yeah. Does okay, that make I mean, sense? No, it, it totally doesn't. I, I think it's fine to say that it, it functions as a metaphor. You know, it's been interesting to me seeing some of the reception of the book, how much it seems to be perceived as a book about ballet. And obviously it is, and obviously that was your experience. But to me, the book is really much more about these bigger themes and ballet is really the vehicle or the metaphor that allows you to explore them. Um, yes. So I wanted to end by talking about the ending. Uh, I've been talking with a lot of writers on this show about choices they make of where to end the book and when they make the choice to have a sort of li little bit later on epilogue, this is where everyone ends up and when they choose not to. Uh, the last writer we spoke to, Christopher Jansmo, who wrote a great book that just came out called Why We Came to the City, talked about how he had actually written an epilogue and then scrapped it. Your book um, does have an epilogue, a brief epilogue, that, and that takes place about a year after the penultimate scene. And in that penultimate scene, uh, Kate has gone back to her childhood home and revisited it. And, and, the, and she, at this point, has met the son that she gave birth to when she was 14, 15. Um, she has, she's in some ways, I think, come to peace with her past. And there is a sense of peace and resolution and hopefulness at, the, at that penultimate scene. Yes. But then you choose to give us, the, you know, the year later. And so I wonder if you can just talk about that decision. Yes. Um, I... I could have done without this epilogue, but I felt that it was important in the sense that we see Kate speaking in front of people as an author. I guess it's it, it, she is, has managed to um, become the narrator of not only her own life, but the moment of history that she was part of, which was this, you know, moment of the high moment of the Balanchine aesthetic. And she, she studies, um, she's speaking about that moment from a critical distance as a professor. Well, actually she's not a professor anymore as a curator. So I like that idea and I enjoyed writing it. It was sort of fun in a way to let her do her thing and maybe selfishly, it allowed me to um, access some of the research that I did during the book <laughs> that I enjoyed so much um, learning about. Um, and my editor and my agent thought it worked, too. So I was allowed to, to keep it. And also, I guess I felt that I wanted to make sure that people, the reader felt clear that there was a future for her, that this is a woman who not only has survived, but she's thriving. Yeah, well, as a reader, I, you know, I always want to know what happens next. So in some ways, it's very satisfying. And of course, I always want the character to turn out okay, most of the time. So it's very satisfying <laughs> to, like, to know that this character you've come to turn to care about yes. is going to be yeah. okay. It's very reassuring right. in that way. And well, I put her through a lot, yeah. You did put her through a lot. Yeah, she kind of deserved a happy ending. Um, Sarah, it's been really great to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM.
want to take a moment to welcome my guests, Kate Kincaid and Alice Baumgartner. Alice was last on Book Talk discussing Rebecca Mackay's novel, The Hundred Year House. This is Kate's first appearance. Kate and Alice, we've been emailing a lot about this book, but I'm so excited to finally talk to both of you. It's great to be back. Hi, so happy to be here. So I want to start by talking about darkness and specifically about blackouts. One of the reasons I had Sari read the first page of the book was because I thought it was so striking that in setting the scene, she chose to feature the famous New York City blackout of 1977. And specifically, I thought that was interesting because blackout has so many meanings, all of which are relevant in the book. It's what happens at the beginning of a performance when the lights go down and at the end of the first act. It's what can happen when someone loses consciousness. It's what can happen when literally a power source fails. And the author really seems to draw our attention to it. In fact, you know, chapter 16 is titled Blackout, even though there are no literal blackouts in that chapter. So I wanted to start by asking if you two have any thoughts on the way that blackouts function on all these different levels in the novel. Um, Well, I do. I uh, found it um, actually, you know, that was one of the prevalent themes for me. And um, one of the questions that it brought up for me, it really made me think about um, what happens in the dark and what do we do in the dark in our own lives. And um, I had listened to a little uh, podcast on keeping secrets and they mentioned dark matter and how 80% of the mass of the universe is made up of this dark matter and that you can't measure it, but it affects everything around it. And I thought about that as I was reading this story, how the darkness affected everything else. And I just wanted to see you know, what you guys thought about that. And I paid kind of close attention to things that happen in the dark to the character. And I noticed that Kate would say things like, um, when she would eat, she would say that evening, I cooked myself a rare steak and ate it in the dark. And when she cuts her hand, she said, the sky darkens. And I watched the blood wind its way into little wrinkles of my palm. And um, I thought about all the things that you know happened in the dark, her eating, the cutting, um, her affair, all of those things that we keep hidden. And um, I guess I wanted to see what you guys felt about that as well. I also noticed that the, the blackouts are these moments where secrets are revealed or the things about ourselves that we don't like to admit are, are, that's where that happens in the dark. And I was really curious about how the idea, not just of dark, but also of light functions in this book, which seems to be so interested in the difference between art and artifice, or to put it another way, um, the ways in which art should mimic life, but the dangers of life mimicking art. Um, and it's almost like those, those blackouts, the darkness, is when uh, both of those are not, not working anymore, or that, um, that life and art are, that that distinction is sort of breaking down. Um, and I was curious, going on that theme, that the, the chapter that Sid just mentioned that's titled Blackout, where there isn't any blackout, is the chapter where um, one of the main characters, Kate, is revealing the fact that she's had this affair with a student. Um, and that affair is so important because it seems like it's that moment where Kate, the character, is realizing or having this empathy with the student who's very much like her because um, as, the, as 
Kate observes, it seems like the student is living life as if she's on stage. So I, I'm curious to hear what you guys think about that as well, about that difference, not just, or the, the importance, not just of darkness, but of darkness and light, the spotlight in particular. What I thought was interesting was the way yeah, that darkness I, can function on, on two different levels. So it can both be protective and it can be threatening. Um, it, it has that flip side. You know, darkness, that moment of blackout uh, in a theater is that moment of expectation where something is about to be created, but dark is also where terrible things can happen. And I felt like there was a lot she was doing with the way that things that are good can also be bad or evil, that it's not clearly defined, that they can have both of those roles. Well, that right, and I think... Oh, go. I'm sorry. No, no, like, like specific to ballet, because I, you know, was quite obsessed with ballet as a youth. I think that that light and darkness, and they mention it in the book, um, is what makes ballet so alluring. It's like if it was just beautiful and light, but it's the there is so much darkness in it. And that ballerina that dances on even as she goes up in flames. Um, you know, she's been consumed by fire, but she'll keep going. Right, and, and that's um, a, that's a reference to you know it's at one point in the book. There's a discussion yeah. of how early in, you know, in the 1900s that, that there were their there were these gas falling apart and all of that that like that like it can't be beautiful unless it's dark and would ballet be beautiful without the darkness there and I think that's that's definitely in there. Right. I, I also wanted to go back, Alice, to something you said about her affair with the student. So Kate, when we meet her in the present day, is this assistant professor at this small college, and she's a professor of dance studies. We learn that she has a past as a performer later in the novel, as we discussed with the interview, we learn that Kate really is Mira, having grown up and taken a new name. Um, but when she has this affair with the student, Siobhan, you know, you said that uh, she sees herself in the, in the student and there's this empathy. What I thought was really interesting was the way that the relationship between Kate and Siobhan in some ways mimics the relationship between Maurice and Mira. Maurice, of oh, course, yeah, absolutely. Ma Maurice, of course, is the older gentleman who is very obsessed with ballet and kind of befriends Mira as an 11-year-old and, 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 uh, and nurtures her in a certain way that her parents are not doing, takes her to his home and tells her about ballet. Um, and of course, in the end, uh, after, after years of having known her, rapes her and impregnates her. Uh, but, you know, for much of this time is sort of this mentoring figure to her, this teacher-student mentor-mentee relationship. And then he abuses that power. And here you have Kate and Siobhan, and she is in that teacher role. And she has this student whom she describes as very beautiful, very pure. And even though the affair is very much instigated by um, Siobhan, uh, there is this, I mean, in, in a way, Mira uh, instigates things with Maurice. You know, she touches him. She, right. uh, you know, not to place the blame on her for the rape, but I think that's deliberate to show that she, you know, she feels guilt because she has done these things to suggest that perhaps she wants that kind of relationship. And Siobhan similarly, you know, takes these steps, but should Kate have consummated it? And, you know, and so it's it's not as simple as like, oh, Kate sees herself in Siobhan and she feels empathy with her because in some ways it's that, again, it's that flip side of Kate's not purely good. She's not purely the innocent victim. In some ways she can be the Maurice, the black and the, the, the dark and the light, very much the same as the ballet, which is both the dark and the lightness. Right. And I kind of, when I was thinking about it, thought of it as, and I wasn't sure if the author did this on purpose, 
that the way if a child is, someone is abused in their youth, sometimes they will act out that abuse as an adult. And while it's different and Siobhan wasn't 14 years old, it was so carefully done to be the same thing, right? It was, you know, she instigated it sort of against Maurice and Siobhan did it to her and then she acts it out. And I felt it was like, did she need to feel what it felt like to be on the, the power side of that, you know? Um, I definitely noticed the same things uh, in that in that scene. I didn't really think about it as clearly until after I was done with the entire book, and then I was like, oh, wow, those are, you know, directly so similar in so many ways. I thought that was one of the real strengths of this book is that it is able to capture how complicated those relationships are, that Mira, or excuse me, Kate, who is also Mira, but Kate as an <laughs> adult is... Um, questioning whether she is in part responsible for what had happened. There's that great line where she sets off into New York and says something to the effect of, you know, whether it was Maurice or whether it was me. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's really uh, comes home for me in the, the last chapter of the epilogue um, where the, she's giving a talk at the New York public library, having left behind the college in Ohio where she was an assistant or in a, a visiting professor uh, and a former bunhead comes and asks her whether she uh, hates Mr. B. And she says she doesn't hate him in the same way that it seems like she doesn't even hate Maurice completely because they showed her the light. Um, and that there's, even though there's a danger to that light uh, that we see and experience throughout the novel, that uh, seeing it, from, at least from afar, is, is beautiful, even though there's that risk of getting too close and, and getting caught on fire, like the early ballerinas who were dancing in front of gaslights, like Icarus going a little too close to the sun. It's this very complicated, uh, there are no easy answers in this novel. You know, we keep mentioning yeah. the word... We keep mentioning the word power, and um, and I think that is another theme in the novel that I wanted to have a chance to talk about. You know, when I started talking about blackouts, I said, you know, literally, it's where power fails, right? And again, I don't think that's a, um, I don't think that's an accidental reference. You know, that I, there's a lot in this novel about who has power, who can wield power, who loses power, the places where power fails us. And you said, Alice, just a moment ago about how. In that relationship with Siobhan, maybe Kate, what Kate wants is to see what it's like to be the powerful one, um, to understand what it means to have that power. And I think there is, throughout the book, this sense that Mira desires power and isn't quite sure how to have it and feels very much that everyone around her, including her parents, and I think you know that's another thing I'd like to touch upon, have a, a lot of power over her. And the only power she has in some ways is this power over her body. And that's what ballet gives to her. And, you know, at the end, the epilogue that you talk about, um, there was a line I really liked on page 285 where she says, as a student at SAB, I learned from Mr. B the great power of my body, but I did not have the ability to understand that power. I loved going to class because I loved to feel what my body was capable of doing. It amazed me. But when it was over, it was gone. Maybe I wrote my book to get it back. And so I think in some ways the whole book is this exercise in regaining the power that she once maybe had a little bit of, but doesn't have anymore. 
Yeah, that particular um, line that you just read reminded me of when Maurice and Mira go uh, to a museum in New York to see a sculpture of of poor ballerina. And Maurice tells her that it was the sculptor who made her beautiful, and that is his power. Um, and that, and I think you're absolutely right that what we're seeing is learning how, or we're watching Kate learn how to exercise that power herself um, and being able to live her life without having some man, whether it's Balanchine or Maurice, uh, pulling the puppet strings. So I want to, talking about men being the ones with power and pulling the puppet strings brings up something that Kate mentioned earlier in our preliminary conversation. Kate, I thought it was really interesting when you talked about how all the men in this book are broken. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Um, one of the most interesting thing about the men, there was a line about Mr. B that, um, you know, the women, that she became a vessel for his genius. And I, I don't know why I hooked onto that line. I love that line. Um, maybe it says a lot about ballerinas. But, um, you know, Maurice is so clearly damaged with the polio, and it goes into his backstory how his, you know, he caught polio by being taken to the ballet, and you kind of see all of his um, weaknesses. And there was a few more men, um, Mr. B himself even, it becomes, you know, something's wrong with him and he's sick. And he, he, that's mentioned also in, um, you know, his physical frailty is mentioned. Um, and we also have um, the man who first kisses Mira, Paul. And um, I don't have the quote out, but he was described as, I, I remember his veins being described and as sort of very sort of damaged and weak. And he admits right away that he tried to kiss her and all of these things. And I felt that there was no male character that was, that was physically strong. The physical strength was with the women and the ballet dancers. And um, all the while the men were, you know, they were the vessels for, you know, the man's genius. So it was kind of interesting to me how she portrayed the men in this novel, for sure. But there's another, there's another take on that, I think, which is, there is something about being broken that I think maybe imbues the person with power that, you know, there's a, in, in the novel, Maurice has this ballet shoe of Pavlova's that he keeps in this glass case. Right. And at the end, uh, at towards the end of his relationship with Mira, right after he has raped her, she breaks the glass case and that ballet shoe in some sense is set free. And I, I felt like that, um, that mo and she says there's a reference um, towards the end where she talks about how that uh, in that moment when the the glass case is broken, she's in the process of becoming, and it's almost it, I felt like it was almost you know talking about ballet that ballet keeps girls in this kind of childlike, innocent, pure yes. state, but in order to become grown in order to become woman in order to actually have some power of their own so they're not just vessels they need to actually be broken childhood has to be broken in order to reach that stage and maybe brokenness is part of growth and maturing and you know becoming an adult 
And so maybe the men, for all they seem broken, are actually, it is only, it's through that process of breaking, which we think of as destructive, that, you know, it's, again, this counterintuitive thing that I think she plays with so much, darkness and light in the same way. That's what's given them their power. Right. Can there be art without suffering? And I wanted to ask you guys, because I, you know, I can't come up with the perfect thing to say about it, uh, that note, when Maurice's note says, I'm one of the dead, um, and you're one of the dead, and um, what exactly that meant. And I didn't know if that meant you're dead if you're not dancing. Um, is that the suffering that becomes art, um, that you have to have this darkness in order to create? Uh, you know, what I, I think that kind of got to that idea, but what exactly you thought of that, that, um, that you have to be one of, the, that they are one of the dead, and what you made of that. Well, we uh, email a little bit about this, and I'm not sure that my interpretation is correct or if I even buy it, but I interpreted that letter, that really cryptic letter, as being a continuation of the metaphor that uh, that we see when Kate cuts herself and the blood is spilling out, and she makes this comparison between blood and secrets and that secrets will... Um, come out in the same way that, that blood comes out as sort of as inevitable as mortality. And that in this final, in the final sections of the book, all of their secrets are out both to the reader and to their son. Um, and, and so it almost seems like they're, they're dead in a certain way uh, because their secrets are gone, but that that in some ways facilitates a kind of resurrection that Kate is able to be actually become um, this happy sort of person. Um, so it, I think it relates back to what Sid was saying earlier, this really smart comment of, of you need to be broken in order to, in order for something else to come afterwards. Well, that, and, and it kind of goes back to this idea of birth, right? Like we only give birth through this sort of very painful process that tears and breaks us, um, but is what enables us to give rise to new life. And that's why I felt like this idea of mothers was really important. And I know Sari and I talked about it a little, but I was actually a lot less right. interested in the stage mothers and their role than in the idea of Kate as a mother, Mira as a mother, and, and Mira's own mother. And Mira's own mother was really, she was, um, yeah, so interesting. And um, Mira's mother says when, um, when uh, Kate comes, no, when she's still Mira, when Mira comes pregnant and they decide to give the baby up for adoption, I think she says, um, she says, uh, you can start again. I can give you that. I had that. I can give you that, meaning a fresh start. And I don't know, I, I don't know how I felt about that line or Mira's mom. I just wanted to see what, how, what you guys felt about Mira's mother. I had sort of mixed emotions around her. I had mixed feelings about her too, but I think the way that she functions is again this idea that like of rebirth, right? Like she's saying, I gave birth to you and in some ways I will like rebirth you by giving you a fresh start. That right. you know, whether it's the right thing or not for her to give up the baby, what she's trying to do is like give her life in the way that she initially gave her life. And I think that, you know, Kate's reencountering her son those many years later, in some ways is again almost like a metaphor of her having the capacity to to give birth to create and not just be a vessel for someone else's creation and to claim mm, and to claim that. And I actually think her career as an academic 
is in some ways representative of that, that she's able to take this art form in which she was originally a vessel and turn it into something that she herself is analyzing, that she's making sense out of it rather than someone else making sense out of her own movement. Right. I guess the question for me that goes back with the um, word dead thing, um, there's a little bit of me that thinks if she's not if she's not that flame dancing, she's always going to be a little bit dead. I think the author talks about, you know, moving past that, um, you know, even as an academic, is she fully coming back to life um, without becoming the dancer and all of that. And um, with the, uh, there's another great mother quote that has to kind of, you know, giving the fresh starts. Um, her mother took a fresh start by leaving Mira when she moved to the other side, and she's referring to that there. But um, it kind of leads to the whole thing because Mira says, um, or says in the third person, yes, her mother is gone, but like a girl in a fairy tale, she has been given a substitute, as rich as her father and as doting and attentive as a mother should be, and that ends up being Maurice, which kind of is a haunting line. I don't know. Right. Um, I mean, I think that... that I think that you know, in some ways, this novel is almost about abandonment. You know, I mean, there's not, it's not central. It's not front and center in the way that all of the ballet stuff is. Right. But, you know, what, what's underneath is that all of this is able to happen because no one is looking out for her. I mean, there's that moment where she first goes to Maurice's house and she comes home late and she's sure her mother will be very worried. And her mother oh, hasn't yeah. even noticed. And mother, nobody notices. Nobody notices. And she's sort of unseen. And again, that gets to like, she wants ballet. There's a line about how ballet for her has become all about being seen and being chosen. And maybe that's because she feels so unseen and unchosen in her own life. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, the the chosen one is so, um, you know, are you going to be a chosen one? But I like that. I like what you said. Um, instead of becoming the vessel to, you know, giving birth to this person that, you know, becomes in charge of their own life, I think that's definitely um, an important part of the ending. So I like that you said that. And I wanted to, um, to maybe just end by talking a little bit about uh, this idea of fairy tales, which you know you just mentioned. And yeah, there's there's a lot that uh, you know. In some ways, there's a fairy tale structure to the whole book. But I thought I was really struck by um, the idea of of Kate and Mira sort of seeing herself as the princess in the tower, waiting for the prince to come. But in the end, I. Uh, and, and even, you know, being an academic, like being in the ivory tower, she still has sort of, is sort of secluded herself, is still sort of waiting. And at the end, even though she's still a curator, she's, she's still involved in, in, you know, in a sort of academic role, there's a sense that she's climbed down from the tower, that she's not waiting for the prince anymore. And I felt like that was a conscious and, and optimistic statement. It was. It was optimistic. And I think... Um... Yeah, in, in light of all of the, you know, the other things that were in here that sort of women go through, the, you know, the, the there was the eating disorders were in there, the, you know, the doing things for men, the abuse, the abandonment, all of that. So it was nice to see the overcoming and um, that she had all this potential and then she was able to use it. I found the ending gratifying for sure. You know, we, have, we are just about out of time, but there was one last thing I really did want to say. I knew there was one thing I was thinking of that had left my mind when we were talking about the dead. 
which was there's a lot about whether or not one should close one's eyes in the book. There's a moment where Mira closes her eyes and leaps into the arms of her partner and he fails to catch her and she falls. And there's this question as to whether or not it was her fault because she closed her eyes or whether you should close your eyes to take a leap of faith. Like when should you do that? But I think in some ways that connects to the sense of like being dead. When your eyes are closed, you cannot see. And maybe it is, or, or closing your eyes to your own past, to your own secrets. And, you know, I, was, I, was, I wasn't sure where the novel came down on that question of like, should we keep our eyes open or shouldn't we? I don't know if either of you have a take on that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I like that too, the, that she, you know, who's the fault and should we close our eyes? I think that the secrets lose their power over her life when they're revealed. Um, and whether that should you jump with your eyes closed, I'm not sure. But certainly you let your past control you when you ignore it or when you don't deal with it or when you don't get it out. All right, Alice, you got uh, the final word. I have one last thing Alice, to say. you get the final word. Uh, but that just reminded me so much of that same scene in the museum with the sculpture where the ballerina, the sculpture of the ballerina has her eyes closed and Mira says she should open her eyes and Maurice says, yes, she should. And it was, it was almost like that's emblematic of the entire book, that perhaps this novel is about Mira and Kate opening her eyes. Well, that's a great place to end. Kate and Alice, it's oh, been nice. a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. Next up, our middle grade pick of the week from our friendly New Haven librarian. Hi, I'm Kyle Litcher, teen librarian at the New Haven Free Public Library. I'm here to recommend and review the young adult graphic novel of the week, My Hero Academia, by author Kohei Hirokoshi. Imagine a world where every single person has a superpower, a world where villains can be your next-door neighbors and heroes can be your classmates, a world where being a hero isn't a hobby or a secret obsession, but a regular full-time job. Now, imagine you are one of the few, the select, the exceptional, to not be born with any superpowers at all. This is the story of Izuku Miruria, the boy who wants to be a hero above all else, but has no superpower to call his own. My Hero Academia is a story about underdogs. It is a story about persistence, hard work, sacrifice, and a bit of luck. This is a story for anyone who has ever dreamed of being a hero or who felt they were dealt a rough hand in life. In other words, this is a story for everyone. For more teen books and programs, come visit the library's newly opened teen center at the Ives Main Library at 133 Elm Street. You can find more information on our website at www.nhfpl.org. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. As a reminder, all books and graphic novel discussed on Book Talk can always be found at the New Haven Free Public Library. Thanks, Kyle. On our next show, airing March 23rd, We'll be discussing the novel The Mad Woman Upstairs, first with the author, Catherine Lowell, and then with my fellow readers, Tui Sutherland and Sophronia Scott. Go get it from the New Haven Free Public Library today and start reading. Then share your thoughts with us on Facebook and Twitter so we can make them part of the conversation. Have thoughts about what we should be reading next or something to add to the discussion you heard today? Email me at booktalkwnhh at gmail.com. Until next time, happy reading.